Hello, FBI Radio listener, Joey Watson here. You are tuning in to Out of the Box every Thursday from midday to one. I get to sit down with one person and chat about stories from their life and the music which has defined them. Today, Father Rod Bauer. Listener, on my bus trip into FBI Radio studio each week, I pass a church. And uh, like many churches, it has a block letter sign out the front. This week, it announced an upcoming fate. Last week, it told me that Jesus loved me. There's a road sign outside Father Rod's uh, Broad Bowers Anglican Church in Gosford too. But in July 2013, the sign was thrust into the centre of Australia's national conversation when it read, Dear Christians, some people are gay. Get over it. Love God. Rod posted the message on the Anglican Parish of Gosford Facebook page too, and to his surprise, it went viral. Five years on, and a healthy dose of death threats later, we've seen signs reading anything from Boo the Bigots, We Stand with Adam Goods, to Change Leader, Change Nothing, Change Systems, Change the World. In recent months, Father Rod has published his autobiography, Outspoken, and announced his Senate candidacy as an independent in this year's federal election. Father Rod... A warm welcome to the FBI Radio Studio and out of the box today. Thank you, Joey. Great to be here. Father Rod, I want to start <clears throat> by looking uh, at your church sign as it's read in recent weeks. Uh, last week, you had a, a sign up that said, Gladys, please, please test the pills. It's a sensitive topic right now. What led you to weigh in on the pill testing debate? Well, there were a number of people at that time, there was a number of music festivals on and, and another number of people being taken off to hospital because they'd had some some bad stuff and, uh, and there were several people who'd also lost their lives. And so I felt it was important to start exploring this in terms of our, our moral framework because uh, a lot of uh, politicians were saying, well, basically, if you don't take drugs, then you won't you won't die of a drug overdose. And that's true. That's undeniably true. But, uh, you know, the, all these pollies were standing around being right uh, while young people were dying. Mm. And for me, that's an unacceptable social ethic. And there was a, a funeral that you held in recent weeks that brought this issue particularly close to home. Can you tell me about that? Yes, last, last Thursday, um, I, I conducted the funeral of Alex Ross King, a wonderful young person and a wonderful family. Uh, and, uh, you know, Alex had made some poor choices and it had cost her life. And so, again, I wanted to say that, you know, while everyone's standing around being right, young people are dying. We have to reframe our moral imagination on, on this issue and a number of other issues, of course, as well. And so uh, we have to have a conversation about in, in, in the imperfect world in which we live, uh, how do we uh, minimise harm? That's the big question. You've done... Uh, hundreds of funerals over the years thousands thousands even if we could go there does it get easier and particularly when you're dealing with things like this where it's almost seemingly avoidable in some way can you tell me a bit about that it never gets easier if 
you remain open to human pain and human suffering, it does get easier if you sort of close off from that. But you're dealing with people in 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 the depths of of pain and grief and and suffering. And and I I think the younger the person whose funeral you are conducting, in some sense, often the the more complicated the grief. Mm. And and so when you enter into that with a, with a family, it's uh, even after thousands of funerals, it never gets any easier. And 30 years I've been doing this. So. Uh, Father Rod, I, I want to go back to 2013. Uh, the first rebel sign you ever put up, as I mentioned in my introduction, dear Christians, some people are gay, get over it, love God. Uh, what what prompted you to put up such a, a an unconventional message? I'd, I'd been called to a, a bedside uh, in a, in an apartment building to administer the last rites to a man who was dying of cancer, and the uh, this guy was gay. Uh, he was a partnered gay man, and uh, the family were understandably anxious that I would be judgmental uh, of uh, of his situation. And um, I understood why they might be like that, but it it kind of deeply affected me. And I wanted to say to my community and to the wider community that, you know, just because I happen to be a Christian priest, uh, don't assume that uh, I'm I'm anti-gay, uh, or don't assume lots of other things as well. So I went back to the church. I put up that sign, dear Christian, some people are gay, get over it, love God. And um, I think. The message got out. There's no mm. doubt about that. You posted it on yeah. Facebook too. What was the response there? The the Facebook response was extraordinary. Um, at that stage, we had about 150 likes. Most parish churches have about 150 likes on their Facebook page. That's <laughs> just how it rolls. You know, it's, uh, your parishioners and a few people that feel sorry for you like your page. <laughs> and then within a week, there was 3,000. Uh, within a month, there was five or 6,000. Now there's 60-odd thousand. Mm. Um, and so the the social media response was overwhelming. And quite a, actually, at the time, quite overwhelming. The media response, I, I wasn't trained to cope with that kind of media response at the time. And so uh, it, it, it took us some time to find our way through uh, what has become, um, you know, a situation where you're quite well known in the wider community and, and how you deal with that. How did the church respond? I've been so lucky uh, over the years to have some bishops who are quite passionate about social justice and sometimes bishops can't say some of the things that perhaps they might like to say so I've discovered that they're often very glad that some of their priests are saying some things. Um, of course there are some people on the conservative side of the of the Christian and political ledger who weren't very happy with what I was saying and um, but generally speaking my bishops have been uh, very supportive. And was there a moment when you realised that that first sign wasn't going to be a one-off, that this was going to be something that was part of your community and your identity as a priest? A few weeks down the track, I, I thought, OK, we've, we've got a plat- obviously got a platform here. The question is, how, how do we use it? Uh, I love Bono's comment that you know, celebrity is currency. Uh, and then you can squander that and waste it or you can spend it wisely. Mm. And so uh, hopefully we've made a, uh, the choice to spend it wisely. Would you call yourself an activist, Father Rod? I, I do fit into that, that kind of, um, yeah, that genre of activism. There's no doubt about that. Um, in, in my tradition, it's also called a, a, a prophetic voice. Uh, in other words, it's, uh, you know, the um, Hebrew prophets were basically social commentators and they'd wander in a town, they'd look around and they'd see what was wrong and try and help people to understand. And, and that's kind of what we do as well. 
The first track you've selected is from uh, Miles Davis's album, Kind of Blue. It's uh, blue and green, some late 50s jazz. Can you tell me about this disc and why you brought it in today? Yeah, I mean, it was hard to choose the music when you guys asked me to choose the music because I don't see myself as a music person. I generally don't listen to music, and, and so that was a, it was a real challenge. And, um, but I think if I did like, uh, if I had a, a, a genre of music that I really appreciate, it would be jazz. Sure. And I think it's because of the improvised nature uh, often of jazz. And in this particular track, the, uh, Miles Davis and his friends got in the studio one afternoon and cut this record and it's been the, it's been the largest selling jazz record ever and it is just totally improvised. smoothest of all jazz 1959 miles davis with blue in green brought onto the out of the box today by father rod bauer priest senate candidate and the man behind australia's most provocative church sign perhaps at the anglican parish of gosford father rod can we go back a few years tell me about the property that you grew up on i was so lucky i i grew up in 
what's essentially an idyllic setting, really. Um, a grazing property uh, in the Hunter Valley, beautiful, lush Hunter Valley. Um, I had all the, all the things little boys have toys of, I had real ones. Uh, horses and dogs and tractors and yeah, so essentially I was so fortunate tractors, to grow up in that context. Tractors were a big deal. Can you can you <coughs> tell me about the, uh, the, the you took a tractor ride when you were five or so? What what happened oh, there? Um, the the tractor had a flat battery, so my father had parked it up the hill so he could jump start, roll it down the hill, and jump start. And, and I often used to sort of go out into the machinery shed and like a five-year-old, I'd sit on the tractor and pretend <laughs> I was driving. And that was, and that was all great, just <laughs> sitting in the machinery shed. But this particular day, I, I left the house, I got on the tractor and I knocked the brake off. And it started careering down the hill um, to certain death, really. There was, <laughs> and my father, luckily, was in, in the house. He saw, it, he saw it through the window and he, he actually took the door off its hinges as he went through the door uh, and, and intercepted me as I went past the house and jumped onto the tractor and, and basically saved my life. I wouldn't be here had he not uh, done that at the time. Yeah. <sighs> wow. Yeah. What kind of primary school did you go to? I went to a tiny little country school, uh, Eccleston uh, Primary School. It had uh, about 12 students, and uh, there were three students in my class. Tiny. Tiny Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy that environment? Not particularly. I I didn't enjoy school at all. Um, Why not? Partially because I'm I'm an introvert, and so I don't do well in groups. But um, also because I, I learn in a different way to the way school learning works. And so I didn't do well at school at all because it, uh, it just didn't resonate with me all the way through. Uh, Father Rod, when did you discover uh, that you were adopted? I, or, I, I can't remember. I, I, I always knew. So at some stage in an age-appropriate way, this information was given to me and, uh, and I grew up uh, knowing that and, and I guess explored that in different ways as I, as I developed as a, as a person. Did your parents ever tell you why they decided to adopt you? I, I always knew that they couldn't have children um, mm-hmm. and that they desperately wanted children. And so um, I always remember you know, growing up with the knowledge that I was, and my sister and I were desperately wanted by our parents in a, in a very special way, we're always told, because you know, they actually chose us. And, uh, and that, was, that was really important. What's it like being adopted in a, into a small country town? I mean, do, what are the social dynamics yeah. there? Do the other children know that you were adopted? The downside of that for, for me was that I grew up in a, in a small country community where there's a high level of familial identity. Everyone's a cousin. Everyone's related to everybody. <laughs> and um, and there's all, there was always a sense in which I didn't quite fit into that paradigm. Um, uh, while I was loved and included, uh, and I would call these people uncles and aunts, there was always a sense that, yeah, they're not really. Right. And to fully embrace that identity um, became, for me, in, in a sense, to have a lack of integrity. And that started me on a, uh, a journey which was sometimes not all that productive of searching for identity and trying to understand who I was. And yeah, Perhaps somewhere along the way uh, of that journey, you decide that you wanted to try and make contact with your birth mother. This is some years later, of course. What happened in your life for you to make that decision? 
I was training for the priesthood at that stage, and that's a, a process of, of deconstruction, really. It's a, quite a traumatic process, um, and uh, and part of the psychological net that you get strained through <laughs> when you're training for the priesthood. Uh, one of my supervisors said, "Look, honestly, you've got a bit of an identity issue there that you've got to do something about, and you know maybe one of the ways you do that is to." Um, see if you can find your birth parents, and that might help you to work through that issue. So that started it, and, and right. about two or three years later, yep. I, I, uh, I, I actually met my my um, birth mother, and uh, my half brother and sister. Can we break um, that down? How, how do you go about make, making contact with your birth birth parents? At that stage, the law had just changed. Uh, this is 1991, and. Um, uh, and so the Department of Community Services at that stage put out a pact and say, if, you know, if you're an adoptee and you want to find uh, your birth parents, then uh, here are some of the ways you can go about it. And one of the ways was if you knew your mother's surname, which I did, um, then you can just go to the phone book. Back in the days when we had phone books, and write to the people in that that area who have the same surname. And luckily, that was only about a dozen people. And my grandfather uh, got one of the letters and passed it on to my mum. Wow. You eventually uh, connect with her outside of David Jones, is that right? That's right. Central yeah. Newcastle. Yes. Uh, what sort of woman was she, and, and what was that first moment like? It was kind of like, uh, you know, we knew each other. It, was, it was, wasn't like meeting a stranger. It was like meeting someone that you kind of knew. It was really weird, and um, and and sharing the the story of the intervening twenty eight years since we last you know, met, which right. was on the day of my birth. Where were you? I mean, how did you spend that afternoon together? Oh, we just, we sat in <laughs> sat in the sun and got terribly sunburnt, um, uh, just on the waterfront at uh, at Newcastle, and told our stories mm. and. Uh, and um, you know we still have a, a, a relationship with uh, with mum and and stepfather and uh, my brother and sister and family. So it's so uh, it was a bond that lasted. Absolutely, yeah. It doesn't always work out very well, I'd have to say. Um, and um, it takes a, a enormous amount of emotional energy, and I dare say emotional maturity to navigate the very tricky waters of a reunion between an adoptee and a relinquishing parent. It's, it's not all, it's not a bed of roses. It's very complex and, and, and difficult emotional stuff for everybody. And so I, you know, part of me would say, you know, finding your, your adopted, uh, your birth parents is a really important thing, and it is, but it's also fraught with danger. And so it's not something you go into lightheartedly or without knowing some of the dangers of doing that. On the topic of motherhood, Father Rod, can you tell me about the record collection that your adoptive mum kept when you were growing up? My mum uh, is uh, a very 1950s person because <laughs> uh, she was married in 1952, and you know, and um, and so her world was the you know the the great. Hollywood musicals of the of the of the nineteen fifties. Uh, she had a, a quite an extensive record collection, and um, but also a lot of the classics. And I remember coming home from school, and uh, she would often have um, some classical music playing on the, what was called then the radiogram, 
And, wow. Uh, I what, could remember what, sit, sitting in front of it listening to some of this music. <laughs> what, what do you think we could pinch from her record collection for well, Out of the Box today? I, I distinctly remember sitting on the floor in the kitchen in front of the radiogram and the uh, you not only listen to music, uh, you, you would feel it coming through the speakers. Uh, and uh, Tchaikovsky's Waltz of the Flowers, I could remember, would uh, evoke for me some of what I was seeing on television, uh, some of the period music at the time, the great waltzes in Vienna. Uh, it's a very romantic thing. Tchaikovsky track Waltz of the Flower I'm afraid to report has not been put on high rotation here at FBI Radio <laughs> it is instead attributable to Father Rod Bauer of the Gosford Anglican Parish the rebel priest is my guest on Out of the Box today Father Rod tell me about Christmas Day 1984 what kind of state did you wake up in I had had a very big night the night before 
and uh, so I woke up with a throbbing headache and uh, feeling not not so well at all. Uh, uh, a pretty pretty tragic hangover, really. One of quite a few uh, tricky nights in that period, from what uh, I yes, understand. that was a, a constant state for me in in those days, especially on a Sunday morning. The magic of Christmas. What did you decide to do? Well, because I'd grown up in a in a in a village with a, I guess, a Christian culture. Um, I, I woke up this particular Christmas day and I thought, oh, you know, it's Christmas day. You know, I, I should go to church. I hadn't been to church for 10 years. And I thought I should actually get up and go to church. So I dragged myself uh, into a church on, a, uh, on that particular Christmas day and I was captured by uh, the, the movement and the colour and the music and the... Uh, and the transcendence of the whole experience. And I I woke up the next Sunday morning and I, I got dressed and I went back again and I kept doing that and I've been doing that now for uh, about 40 odd years. Wow. <laughs> Eventually uh, you decide uh, that you might look good in the cloth and you try your luck at priesthood. Where did you go into training, Father Rod? I, uh, people kept sort of at me about this and saying, well, you should be a priest. You should, and I kept saying don't be ridiculous and I, I I went to the bishop and I said I'll settle this and he'll just throw me out of his office and laugh at me and that'll be the end of it but he didn't and uh, and so I went through a process that took me to a seminary in Morpeth which is just outside Newcastle uh, it had been a place that we had trained priests for a very long time and um, so I went into this monastic really environment for three years where you are uh, taken apart in all sorts of ways and wow. often not put back together so well. And, Were you still uh, on the drink at this stage? Oh, even more so. Yes. I mean, it was such a traumatic experience, the, uh, the, the formation. Uh, we, uh, we drank far too much, a number of us drank far too much, even to the point when we ran out, we'd raid the chapel for the communion wine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fiction. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> How did you uh, spend your first night at the seminary? Oh, you know, uh, I sat. You have a room which is a tiny room, a bed and a desk basically, and uh, and I sat. I I went and sat in this room, and now what do I do? You know, I was just by myself. I had there was no television or radio or anything, and uh, so I walked down to the town, and um, I met a few people in a pub, and. That went on and on and on into the early hours of the morning. So my first day at college at seven o'clock, we walked across to the chapel for mass, and um, I was again not feeling a hundred percent that morning. Mm. It's an almost literary image, the drunk priest. Yeah. What 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 was going through your mind? I mean, we've talked about some of your early life, but what was going through your mind that to drive you to, to, to drink and to kind of be the sort of person that you were in that period. Almost, almost yearning for something yeah. different in the priesthood. But I think partially because there was modelling there for me because my father was an alcoholic. Mm. And so there was some sense in this is what adult men do. Um, and I had to sort of rewire myself uh, about that. And um, But there's also, I mean, the classic sort of caricature of the of the drunk the whiskey priest is a lot about the the pain and the and the and the turmoil that you absorb as a priest from other people and not being able to process it we have much better processes now than we used to mm. um also the loneliness and the isolation and you know all of that kind of stuff so you'd sit you know i sat in this room 
by myself and um and that sort of loneliness and isolation was a it was a, a quite a destructive thing for me i'm prone to it because i'm an introvert I, I like spending time alone but that's not always a healthy thing to do you mentioned that you felt as if you were almost deconstructed uh, at theological college how does that work in practice what does that what does that mean because you often come to, as a young, especially as a young ordinand and seminarian, you come to that with a, a particular framework, a theological framework, a worldview framework, a, a personal identity framework, and um, and that's kind of got to be deconstructed a bit to allow you to to go to a deeper place theologically and personally and. Uh, and and that's always, I think, for we, us human beings, uh, when we have our 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 framework uh, and our terms of reference challenged, I think that's always a, uh, a traumatic thing. That's what the terrible twos are about. That's why two-year-olds <laughs> stamp their feet and, and, and throw themselves on the ground because actually their framework of them being the centre of the universe is being deconstructed. And and I think that happens at different times through our life, and uh, it goes on forever, really. How did you get through it? Uh, Good luck, um, a few friends, um, and uh, and too much booze was the is, is the honest answer to that. Uh, it's not a particularly uh, life enhancing way to get through it, but uh, that's the way I got through it. I do it very differently now, of course, but uh, uh, life life has taught me some valuable lessons. The next track you've selected to play is Simon and Garfunkel, The Sound of Silence. How did uh, how did Simon and Garfunkel enter, or the sounds of Simon and Garfunkel enter your theological training? Well, it was more after I was ordained. I was uh, sent to Cessnock, uh, a, a town in the, in the Hunter Valley, uh, as a young priest, and uh, again alone. And um, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was learn to play the guitar, and so I, I learned to play four chords on the guitar, and that's still all I can play. <laughs> And uh, I, one of the songs I could remember sitting at home at night practicing was the sounds of silence because they had the chords I could play. But I think it was deeper than that. The, the words "Hello, darkness, my old friend" is was something that you know resonated with me Hello, at the time. Darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again because a vision softly creeping. Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence In restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp When my eyes were stared by the flash of a neon light To split the night And touch the sound of silence And in the naked light I saw Ten thousand people, maybe more People talking without speaking People hearing without listening People 
share No one dared Disturb the sound of silence Fools said I, you do not know Silence like a cancer grows Hear my words that I might teach you Take my arms that I might reach you But my words like silent raindrops fell Echo the wells of silence And the people bowed and prayed To the neon god they made And the sign flashed out its warning words that it was forming and the sign said the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls tenement halls whispering the sounds of silence That was The Sound of Silence from Simon and Garfunkel, brought into FBI Radio today by my guest on Out of the Box, Father Rod Bauer. Father Rod, in 1995, you were inside a metro station in Paris, standing on the platform, when an announcement came over the loudspeaker. What did it say? Well, it was in French, so I didn't really know what it said. Um, but the few people who were in our group um, understood enough to know that um, it said the word bomb. And uh, But they didn't quite know enough to understand the subtleties of what it was saying about the bomb. But it was the announcement was telling us that there was a bomb threat and that we needed to stay where we were in the underground... Um, part on the platform of the metro and um, you know you're in a foreign country you don't really understand the language uh, it's it's a terrifying and, and a helpless feeling uh, and uh, so we were frozen on this platform um, being told to stay where we were and you know where was the bomb where was it going to go off you know, it was an extraordinary experience can you describe the atmosphere on the platform oh, just uh, one of uh, of shock and it, it wasn't like panic it was um, one of just being frozen uh, in fear and um, yeah it happened a, a couple of other times while I was in Paris at the time because the Algerians at the time were protesting against uh, you know, French policies and it was uh, not an uncommon event and I think there were other sort of Parisians there who weren't at all perturbed about this because that's what happened all the time mm. but for us Australians who were uh, uh, it, there was a, a dozen or so of us, and um, it was terrifying. So it was 45 minutes. Did you think about death? Later, yeah, after I did, uh, at the time, I can't remember thinking anything. It's a weird experience. You just kind of freeze, and everything stops, and you, you stop thinking and um, I think that's what terror does to people they, they freeze and they stop and and you know the the flight f- fright f- fight freeze kind of thing well, we, we froze because there's nothing else you can do you can't fight because you don't know who you're fighting and there's uh, and you can't run away because there's nowhere to run to mm. yeah 
Father Rod, I, I grew up in a, a secular uh, Jewish family, but uh, if you don't um, mind me j- jumping over uh, to seek your, your counsel, um, life uh, is full of seemingly random moments uh, like this, moments of existential dread, moments where you might come close to death. Uh, how, how do you, as a, as a man of God, justify these things? Oh, I don't. It's as simple as that. Um, what do you mean by that? I don't try and justify it. Um, it's just, it just is. It is just the the way we human beings function in a broken world. And um, there's, we are surrounded by so much brokenness. Um, and uh, and we have to find, as humans, we have to find a way to, the best way we can to navigate that and to find our way through it. And um, and sometimes in situations like that, it's it's just a matter of survival. It's afterwards that we look back and reflect on it and try and you know, give it meaning or uh, try and understand it. Mm. Um, and that's fine. And that's what we human beings do. We try and 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 apply meaning to uh, situations that sometimes don't actually have any meaning. And in this situation, uh, there was a, a a group of people, and I don't agree with what they were doing because it's violence, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a non-violent person, but I can understand after you know, you know generations of oppression um, that people will rise up and often act in in destructive ways. I mean, I know that from my own story that uh, in my own brokenness caused me to act in a self-destructive way. That's what we human beings do, and. And hopefully we take little tiny steps towards wholeness in our in our journey, where we 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 stop acting in such destructive ways and, and start acting in more constructive ways. I I hope that's kind of my story in some ways. Wow, Father Rod, if we can go back to that platform, someone starts singing. Tell me about that. Yeah, and all of a sudden we're just standing there frozen. I think this is what started to empower us in some way like okay if we're going to die we're not going to die powerless and someone just started singing uh that that great song lean on me and uh and we all started to join in and we just kept singing this song and the the, the parisians were looking at us quite strangely but it kind of got us through the moment whenever i sing this i remember that time in the in the metro Sometimes in our lives We all have pain We all have sorrow But if we are wise We know that there's always tomorrow Lean on 
Lean on Me, the voice of Bill Withers, and it was brought onto the radio by the man behind some of the most radical church signs in Australia, priest, Senate candidate, and my out-of-the-box guest, Father Rod Bauer. Father Rod, that song evoking uh, memories of your relationship with Kerry, your wife, for for decades now. Yeah, two decades, yeah. I mean, she's the one now I, I lean on, and uh, uh, in, in fact, I wouldn't be who I am today without her. She's an integral part of uh, my existence, really, and uh, uh, the, my moral compass and the light of my life and, and the person I lean on. And, yeah, without her, I'd, uh, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Rod, I, I want to talk about another relationship in your life. Um, Mondays were particularly difficult in your family when you were growing up. Why was that? Monday was uh, the cattle sale day in Maitland, which was our local major centre. And um, on uh, on Mondays, my parents would go to the cattle sales. Um, uh, but Dad would uh, invariably end up at the pub at lunchtime and uh, he would come home uh, quite drunk. And um, normally he was a, a decent, um, caring, gentle um, you know, human being. Uh, but when he was drunk, he could be quite violent. And so, um, uh, and sometimes he would you know, wave firearms because you're on a farm, you have firearms, and uh, he would wave them around. So my job, really, on a on a Monday when I got home from school, was to um, take all the firing pins out of the firearms and hide the ammunition, and and that was quite a strange. When you look back at now, you know, sort of seven or eight years old, and you have this responsibility to, you know, to disable firearms because your father's going to come home drunk. And um, but yeah, I, when I look back to what was 
an idyllic childhood, except for this one thing, that uh, sometimes on a Monday uh, our lives are actually in danger. Do you also have happy memories of your father? Oh, I do. I mean, I have wonderful memories of, you know, I think when I was uh, 10, um, uh, you then got to, to ride out with Dad and the other men and um, mustering and, and even just Dad and I riding out into the, into the you know, property, counting cattle and sitting on the side of hill talking and, uh, you know, I have some delightful memories of him, and um, but also some some pretty frightening ones. And um, and I guess that's what human relationships are about. They aren't all you know good memories. Sometimes there are bad ones. And uh, one of the ways we be de- deeply human is to uh, try and integrate uh, all of those memories into something that's uh, that's real and life giving to us. A few months before you turned 14, it was a, a mustering day uh, and you wanted to stay home. What did your parents say? Yeah, I desperately wanted to stay home and, and muster with all the other men. I'm 14 because I want to be a man. And you know, mm. and uh, the answer was no, you're going to go to school. And uh, I was brooding like only a 14-year-old can do. And uh, I, uh, I stormed out of the house and went to catch the bus and I didn't say uh, goodbye to my parents and in particular on this day, of course, I didn't say goodbye to Dad. When, when the school bus uh, pulled up back at your home that afternoon, can you tell me about what you saw? The, uh, the cattle were still in the yard and the men were standing around and horses were grazing and I thought, my initial thought was, wow, that's great, I'm, uh, they haven't started the drive yet and uh, I'm going to run to the house, I'm going to get changed, I'm going to catch my horse, I'm going with them. And so I made my way to the house and one of the men grabbed me and, um, and, uh, and sort of told me that my father had collapsed and that he'd been taken, uh, bundled in the car and taken to hospital. Um, and uh, something in me at that moment knew that he died. What did you, what did you do that afternoon? Um, then I, yeah, I mean, I, I, what I essentially did was abandon my adolescence because I, I, I went and got changed and I, his horse was there, so I just simply got on his horse. And in my mind, I was taking the position of the, the man, you know, of the house, and we drove the cattle, and um, uh, yeah, it was a stormy night. And um, we—I got home about nine o'clock that night, and that's when Mum told me that he died. That that argument um, that you'd had that morning before you went to school—did you feel, in some way, that you had burdened the responsibility of your father's death? Well, I'd had a conversation during... I was so angry with him for not letting me go on the master that I had spoken very negatively about him uh, to one of my friends at school that day. Um, and there was a sense in which, as a you know, 13-year-old boy, uh, I felt that because of what I'd said about him that I had in some way caused his death. And that stayed with me for a, you know, it's nothing rational about it, of course, mm. but it it stayed with me for a very long time. Mm. Yeah. How, how do you carry the legacy of that? I mean, in the years immediately after, perhaps, how how did that inform? I mean, eventually you turned to alcoholism, mm. etc. But how does an experience like that, with the context of his violence in the years before, inform the kind of person that you were at that period of your life? 
I think it's it informs in the way that I was a very confused person, carrying enormous burden of of guilt, um, trying to be somebody that I was not capable of being because I was only a kid, um, and um, and trying to be an adult when I wasn't capable of being one, and I think that was a very destructive thing to to do as a as a young person, but. Um, it, it took me many years to work through, uh, probably another 20 years, to be honest, to work through some of that stuff. And your mother? Mum was, uh, is a, a very stoic kind of person. Um, here she was, he was, she was left with a, with a, a, a grazing property to run and two, two kids, two teenage kids to raise. Um, she, she just had to get on with it, and she's that kind of person that does just get on with it, but... Um, it wasn't an easy relationship for us because she had this out of control teenage boy uh, trying to contain me as well as you know run her life and uh, and so there were some tensions there for a long time. We started this interview, Father Rod, talking about funerals and death. Uh, some years later, after this incident, you finally said goodbye to your dad. Tell me about that. I was actually in a cemetery. I'd, I'd conducted a funeral and everyone had left. And um, and for me, it just seemed to be what I needed to do was to go back to the kitchen on that day and say goodbye um, and release myself from this somehow or other. And, and it just seemed to be the place at the time. And I stood beside this grave. It wasn't his, but it was a grave. Uh, and I went back into the kitchen um, at home and instead of just running out in half, I said goodbye to him. And uh, and that was an incredibly freeing experience. Um, it freed me from the guilt I felt for not saying goodbye and it kind of brought closure to me and, and liberated me in some way from some of that pain. It was a, quite profound. Father Rod, what, what are you going to play us out with today? Well, as a... Uh, as a teenager, I can remember um, hearing the song, Open Up Your Heart. And uh, at that stage, I remember it, it kind of think, yeah, that's, that's right. That's what we need to do. Um, you know, there is pain in the world, but a good way of, of navigating that is to do it with an, with an open heart. And uh, I think um, now that's part of my, this song embodies part of my philosophy of life. Of course, thank you very much to my producer, Bree, and to you, Father, for being my guest on Out of the Box today. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Joey. There's no formula for happiness It's guaranteed to work It all depends on how you treat your friends how much you've been hurt But it's a start When you open up your heart And try not to hide What you feel inside Just open up your heart There's no dream